Hello, and welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and being not mad, just disappointed. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Christina Cotarucci. I'm a senior writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. And me, Laura Miller. I'm the books and culture columnist for Slate. This week, Laura and I are talking about Liz Cheney, the Republican congresswoman from Wyoming. If you've been watching the congressional hearings about the January 6th attack on the Capitol, you've been seeing a lot of Cheney. She's the vice chair of that committee and one of only two Republicans there. So Cheney has been at the head of this investigation that's revealing how Donald Trump tried his very best to overturn the results of the 2020 election and hold on to presidential power. Um, And because Liz Cheney voted to impeach Trump after the January 6th attack, Trump has endorsed her primary opponent, another Republican, who's currently leading by about 22 points in the polls. So Cheney is almost certainly going to lose her job in a few months. This is why I'm excited to talk about her today, because it's thrilling, uh, in a way, to watch what she's been doing. Um, Because it's just so rare to see somebody do that. Mostly when we see people in politics, um, you know, they are often swayed by big donors, by lobbyists, by their parties very often and less often. They can be moved by the feelings and opinions of their constituents. But what it seems like we're watching when we watch Cheney is somebody who may very well be throwing away their career in elected office to do What she believes is right. Her motivation seems to be almost entirely uh, internal. I'll be interested to hear what you think, Laura, about whether that's a fair interpretation of what's going on. Um, But you wrote a great piece in Slate about Cheney's role on the January 6th committee. Why did you want to talk about her? Well, I agree that it is impressive to see somebody who is willing to sacrifice their political career for the sake of principle, which it definitely appears to be what she's doing. And and in contrast to so many other Republicans, many of whom denounced Trump early on in his campaign or at various points in his presidency, and then just had to back down when the base came for them and they worried that that they would be on the outs. But what really fascinated me about Liz Cheney in the hearings is the way that she conducts herself, um, because it is so very much at odds with the way people on both sides of the political divide talk about issues now. She's just kind of preternaturally calm, and her manner communicates just this complete conviction that she's right about Trump And I think her belief that anybody can just see this if they just look at the evidence. She doesn't get angry. She doesn't express outrage in just an age where outrage is is cheap. And the main thing that she gets across to the whole country is just a profound disappointment in her fellow Republicans, the ones who, who continue to support Trump, as well as Trump himself. And this seems just really unusually effective to me. It's just very striking. Although I don't think I'm her intended audience, so I don't know how it's going down with them. 
Well, the January 6th committee is done with its first set of hearings. They'll be holding more in the fall. So there's a lot more Cheney to come before she will presumably leave Congress. After the break, we'll discuss what exactly it is about Cheney's position and how she wields it that is so compelling to some viewers, especially liberals, and what her endgame might be. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out our other episodes, like last week's about the Catholic Church and abortion rights. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We're back talking about Liz Cheney and the January 6th committee. Laura, give me a couple of highlights from your Cheney reel. You have been a very astute observer of her. What moments stick out to you when you think back on the hearings we've seen so far? Well, there are two moments in her opening remarks, both in the very first hearing and then the most recent hearing, that I think were just moments where she just really rang a bell that just resounded through the country. Um, In the first one, she said, and it was so striking, she said, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone but your dishonor will remain. So that was really remarkable because you just don't often hear people talking about dishonor in in congressional hearings in in such a a grave way and it 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 seemed really profoundly sincere like sh- she just really believes that they have completely dishonored themselves. It's a it's an old-fashioned term and um I think that it's a term that is more meaningful probably to Republicans, a, a type of rhetoric more meaningful to Republicans than to Democrats, and very carefully chosen for that reason. Um, and the second was a rebuttal to this pivot among Trump defenders more recently, as they've come to perceive that the hearings they couldn't just scoff the hearings away as like a kangaroo court. It's clear that they are actually affecting how people view. January 6th and Trump himself. And so they've switched from from saying what happened was not really a big deal. And this is just like a liberal scheme against Trump. They're blowing it out of proportion to saying, okay, sure, what happened was bad, but Trump wasn't really responsible for it. He had like bad advisors and, you know, maybe he didn't really know what was going on, which is pretty bad in a president. But um, But let's play this quote from Liz Cheney. This is a really powerful one. President Trump is a 76-year-old man. He is not an impressionable child. Just like everyone else in our country, he is responsible for his own actions and his own choices. As our investigation has shown, Donald Trump had access to more detailed and specific information showing that the election was not actually stolen than almost any other American. And he was told this over and over again. No rational or sane man in his position 
could disregard that information and reach the opposite conclusion. And Donald Trump cannot escape responsibility by being willfully blind. She's talking about Trump, the idea of Trump as a toddler. And I feel like this has been a pretty common bit of imagery that's been used often against Trump to say, you know, he's just a toddler throwing a tantrum. And because it's um, so rare to see somebody whose id is like so much at the surface of who they are, and in part because he's been insulated by his privilege for his entire life. Um, and he hasn't had to sort of develop the self-control that a lot of other people have who, you know, want to succeed in politics or business. But the way she's uh, referring to Trump as a toddler is she's referring to the way Republicans, as you mentioned, are using that uh, comparison to defend him. And uh, when you talk about, you know, whether Trump is a child or not, you write that, you know, she she uh, exhibits a sort of specific type of maternal vibe. Can you explain that? We get very much the Liz Cheney just tapping into some kind of primal mother vibe here. She is very much like a very successful, competent woman executive, like a powerful female figure who has been called into the principal's office because her teenage son has done something incredibly stupid and dangerous and probably illegal. And now she and the other authority figures are going to discuss what the consequences of that are going to be. And there just isn't even any question in her mind that he knows that what he did was wrong and that this is a very serious matter. And it's just exactly the vibe that she has, you know, where she has been pulled away from doing something so much more important by this bullshit. And she has just like she's just so disappointed in him. A lot of political figures do tap into these sort of parental longings that we have, you know, whether it's Ronald Reagan seeming like a a, a warm grandfatherly uh, storyteller, or in a negative way, many people felt like Hillary Clinton was a nag, like a wife or uh, a, somehow a disempowered mom, you know, like a mom who was just like constantly bugging you to clean your room. Whereas the mom energy that Liz Cheney is tapping into here is just this moral authority that is really like a certain kind of female moral authority that, um, you know, we don't often see deployed in this way in the public sphere. And, you know, I mean, I felt guilty listening to her talking about some of this behavior, you know, just instinctively. (laughs) Like as if you were the one that had attempted a coup. <laughs> You're like, is she talking to me? When I read your piece, which, by the way, uh, listeners, you should definitely read it. It's called Liz Cheney Isn't Mad, She's Disappointed uh, on Slate.com. My initial reaction to the mom comparison was like, oh, you know, saying a woman politician reminds you of a mom is incredibly fraught. Because as you mentioned, you know, with your Hillary Clinton example, our ideas of politicians and business leaders are so thoroughly male that oftentimes when we see a woman in a position of power, the only thing people can think of is a mom or a teacher or an ex-wife, you know, and this has been deployed 
to the extreme by conservatives often in response to Hillary Clinton, Kamala Harris, Sammy Klobuchar, you know, slot in your female politician here, um, in part because people have a hard time interpreting and internalizing female leadership without running it through the lens of these traditionally feminized roles. But I haven't heard a lot of people discuss what it might mean to see that as a compliment. She reminds me also, when you mentioned a teacher, there's this uh, great sitcom called Abbott Elementary, and there's a young teacher who's sort of the central character, and she can't get the kids to do anything. And then there's this older woman teacher who just, all she has to do is look at the kids, and they immediately fall into line. You know, she just has this authority that is kind of completely unquestioned, like no one would dream of defying her. And it feels like that's what... Liz Cheney is tapping into and making it work to her advantage instead of fighting against it. Part of the power of her, the persona that she's deploying is that she is not ever losing her cool or losing her temper. And some of the impact of that comes from the fact that we are in a politics that where everyone is screaming all the time. And, and in a way, it makes her seem more powerful that she is so calm. I do think there's probably room for both, especially in a situation that is different from these hearings where it's only people who don't support Trump engaging in the hearings. So there's not really any back and forth. There's no defense, if you want to call it that. It's like 100% prosecutorial vibe. Whereas in other situations, or especially right after the January 6th attack, I did feel like I wanted people to be reflecting my own anger and outrage. I think that there needs to be both where, you know, you mentioned that you don't feel like you are Liz Cheney's target audience. So uh, I'm assuming you mean she's trying to talk to Republicans. Is that is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that um, rabid, irrational Trump supporters are the most visible to many of us. But there's a lot of people who are Republicans. I mean, Liz Cheney herself voted for Trump. There are a lot of people who sort of feel like, well, to get the po- policies or the judges or all these other things we wanted, we have to sort of have this imperfect vehicle of this guy. And he's like rough around the edges. And he does, the, you know, a lot of the things that like the Trump fan loves. I think there are people who voted for him who don't like those things, who didn't like how he behaved on Twitter, who thought he was unpresidential, but who basically, because they generally supported the other policies of the Republican Party, sort of um, just kind of grit their teeth and and voted for him, you know, and that is who I think she's speaking to. She's speaking to the kind of Republicans for whom the term dishonor is still meaningful. What she's trying to say to them is he just went too far. And you can't, as people of conscience, continue to sort of excuse that or say, oh, I wish he wouldn't do that, that this was just too much. She's modeling behavior like a like a good uh, teacher or authority figure where, you know, you can't be it if you can't see it. So somebody might look at her and and see an example of like, okay, I can still be an extremely conservative Republican and disapprove of everything that Trump has done. 
We're going to take a break here, but listeners, if you want to hear more from Laura and me on another topic, a related topic, check out our Slate Plus segment. Today, we're talking about the saintly images of Cassidy Hutchinson, the most explosive witness in the January 6th hearings. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like Amicus, Slate Money, and of course this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Now that we've talked about Cheney on the committee, I want to talk about the love that certain Democrats have for her and whether that might be part of her eventual goal. So Democrats have been telling members of the press that they want to see her run for president. These are Democratic voters. I don't know that any anybody in Democratic leadership feels this way. But um, it's been interesting to watch because for progressives, and for those of us who were politically cognizant during the George W. Bush administration, even the word Cheney is enough to, you know, send chills up our spine. But people love a redemption narrative. People love to believe that others are capable of change, especially people who are on the other side of the political spectrum. Um, You see this in what I have come to see as the sort of fetishization of the Lincoln Project. These, you know, never Trump Republicans who have been making viral ads opposing Trump. It's almost more exciting, I think, for a certain segment of Democrats to see Republicans oppose Trump than it is to see Democrats oppose Trump, because of course they do. Meanwhile, a study of the Lincoln Project's ads 
uh, showed that the moral, the more viral an ad was, probably because it appealed to liberals, the less it was able to sort of convince a swing state voter to reconsider their support for Trump. I'm a little skeptical of the ability of this these sort of Republicans who have changed their mind about Trump to convince other people to do the same. Um, but I'm curious how you've interpreted the uh, Democratic excitement for Liz Cheney's little Trump switcheroo. I really think that there's a divide in the Republican Party between a a sort of chamber of commerce, pro-corporate, one percentish Republican who basically just wants no taxes and no restraints on on corporate behavior, and a sort of cultural conservative, working class base that um, has been just whipped up into a frenzy about gun control and and gays and abortion and, and all of these other issues. It's a weird coalition of people who don't actually have that many interests in common. And I think that the, the, the Republican Party is sort of split, you know, that 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 coalition is sort of fragmenting. And people like Cheney want to sort of pull back to a, you know, uh, a kind of Mitt Romney-ish version, version of Republicanism that's, that's um, you know, stays inside the, the institutional uh, mores and all and, and, and standards, but still pursues certain kinds of policies that you and I would deplore. And then this sort of weird cult of personality and culture war stuff. I, I just, I, I feel like this, this way that they, they use to get votes, you know, votes to get their candidates into office, whipping up all of this culture war stuff, is just come back to bite them in the ass. And so she's just trying to reestablish that old establishment form of republicanism. I have no idea whether she'll succeed or not. I think there's more overlap between the two types of Republicans you're describing than initially meets the eye. And I also think there's kind of a middle ground, which this uh, group of voters who are wealthy but don't have a college education sort of came out as a demographic that was extremely into Trump. And I think people like that sort of bridge the gap between what you're talking about, sort of like the working class, extremely motivated by guns and abortions and the... 1%, um, I have a yacht and I don't want to be taxed on it, people. And I just want to, for the record, in case our listeners aren't aware, like Liz Cheney voted with Trump 93% of the time when he was in office. You know, she voted for abortion restrictions. She voted to fund the border wall, supported the Trump tax cuts, obviously, voted against uh, the For the People Voting Rights Bill. Like, she's a Republican and supports pretty much everything Republicans do except for the stealing of the election. She opposed gay marriage, uh, even though her own sister is gay married, until very, very recently. Uh, and of course, she's really into the use of torture. So I challenge the Democrats who have been talking about her as a potential uh, presidential candidate that they would vote for to actually think about all the things a president has to do besides not try to steal the election when they're voted out of office. But wait, do they want her to run because they want to vote for her? Or do they just want her to run because they don't want politics to be as insane as it was before? I mean, that's those are two different things. Like, like they want her to be the Republican candidate that they can vote against? Exactly. Yeah, just, I mean, I agree. There's many reasons to be terrified of a, of a Liz Cheney presidency, but it's not... 
as terrifying as Trump because he's not going to turn us into a banana republic. I mean, she's not going to turn us into a banana republic. This gets at what I think is very soothing about Liz Cheney to a lot of Democrats, which is that it's really scary to look at the Republican Party as it is. Scary things have happened. The the fact that Donald Trump won the Republican nomination, for one thing, and then won the presidency, the fact that Ron DeSantis now seems like a possible uh, challenger to him, and that, you know, we're replacing uh, an incompetent authoritarian with possibly a competent one. Um, that's all very scary. And I think to look at Liz Cheney is to envision um, a more hopeful future. I just don't think that future is plausible. I mean, it is so dispiriting to look at the Republican Party's rot and the fact that it seems to be motivated now by cruelty and greed and petty grievances, uh, racism and sexism, religious dogma, uh, the fact that in 2020, the Republican Party just decided not to adopt an actual party platform. Instead, they just said, you know, we support what Trump wants to do. The, a party with no serious intellectual grounding and with a set of quote unquote values that go against what many of us believe to be the foundation of the country, like that's frightening. And so I think while it's exciting to look at Liz Cheney and think about maybe this is a way that the Republican Party could redeem itself, um, I mean, I just don't think that's going to happen. Well, certainly not now. I don't think she has a lot of support now, but I think she's, this is just kind of like a Hail Mary move on her part, you know, that she just, she just wants to, to try to save it, you know, and maybe it won't happen right away. Maybe, um, you know, the party will be torn apart between Trump and Pence and DeSantis. I mean, I, I actually think the hearings have been effective in, 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 and sort of splitting off some possible Trump supporters um, to other candidates. And and it's clear that Pence is being set up as like the good guy in the whole Which thing. Is so wild. And there have, oh my gosh. My I Pence. know. And there have been there have been other, you know, sort of moves made to suggest that, you know, Pence is seen as the preferred candidate. Cause just because he's just so much more predictable and Trump was a disaster, even for Republicans in some ways, because he just was so unmanageable. He doesn't actually care about the Republican Party at all. I mean, he only cares about himself. So, and, and who really wants to deal with more of that? Um, so, you know, who knows, uh, maybe the the whole thing will kind of become balkanized, but then ultimately reform around some sort of core that she can believe in again. Before we head out, we have some recommendations for listeners. Laura, what are you loving right now? Um, a book that I read recently that I really uh, appreciated a lot is called Trailed by Catherine Miles. It is true crime because I am a true crime junkie, but I also understand the distaste many people have for the genre. And I really hate the sort of wine and wisecrack podcast approach to the genre. It just feels really ghoulish and, and tacky to me. Um, but this is a beautifully, deeply reported, well-written investigation of the murder of two young women backpackers in Virginia's Shenandoah National Park. The thing that I love about it is the crime is unsolved, and the lives of these two women, who are a couple, um, are so 
richly and beautifully developed. You really feel the tragedy of, of their murder. And it also sort of brings to light the issue of national parks, uh, the dilemma of um, outdoors women, who you know, women hikers, women backpackers, who ought to have the freedom to use the parks like anyone else, but who are subject to all different kinds of singling out from harassment to actual assault, and how poorly the parks themselves cope with with these crimes or or just you know providing safety for for women in national parks. Um, it's a really sensitive and beautifully written book. And, and I just, I loved it. It's just a story of these two really unusual women. You know, they both came from really particular backgrounds. And, and this was in 1996. So, you know, they, they were sort of out a little bit, but not necessarily to everybody. And, you know, one came from a religious family, one came from a very rich family. It just, it, they felt like characters in a novel to me. And um, it was just a, a wonderful read. Wow, that sounds extremely good. Uh, and I love Shenandoah National Park. I have kind of a strange for me recommendation. It's going to be a recipe. So I have been a part of two um, meal trains recently. I had two friends who had babies. And so, you know, uh, people set up a little schedule where we could all volunteer to bring them food. Um and I made the same salad dressing for a kale Caesar salad for both of these people that I was cooking for. Um, both people came back with big compliments for this salad dressing. You know, I made a whole ass lasagna for one of them and the compliment was for the salad dressing. Fine. So I'm going to just go ahead and recommend it here. I have made Caesar salad dressing before with a blender and the egg yolks and, you know, this doesn't involve either of those things. It makes it about 50% simpler, and it's just as good. Um, the name of the food blog, I find that food blogs always have titles that are um, super cheesy and embarrassing to say. So this one is called Once Upon a Chef. Uh, that's the name of the blog. This It's just homemade Caesar salad dressing. Um, it is addictive. It's so good. Um, when I make it, I it calls for a cup of mayonnaise. I replace half of it with plain Greek yogurt, which I find gives it a really nice tang. And I find that there's just something about homemade salad dressing. It's always better than bottled, and this makes it really easy to do. It also works as a dip. I've even been spreading it on toast with um, fresh tomatoes. If you're a big tomato stan like I am, you know, this is our season to shine. So highly recommend the Caesar salad dressing on toast, on a salad, wherever you feel. Again, it's the blog is Once Upon a Chef, uh, homemade Caesar salad dressing. That's our show for this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Shannon Paulus is our editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. And Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer of audio. As always, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topics, same time and place. <laughs>